Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about hoof care basics. If you're like most horse owners, you probably see your farrier more than your veterinarian. That's because horse hooves need regular care, and when things go wrong with feet, they tend to go very wrong. A horse's foot issue can impede his performance and even become life-threatening. To answer your questions about horse hoof care, we're joined tonight by Dr. Scott Fleming, a podiatrist with Rudin Riddle Equine Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. Welcome, Dr. Fleming. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Fleming, can you tell us a little bit how you became involved in equine podiatry? And the, for those who haven't worked with a podiatrist, maybe you can help us understand what it means to be an equine podiatrist. Sure. So, um, you know, I think being a veterinary podiatrist is loosely uh, defined as someone who studies and treats uh, hoof pathologies um, with the horse. Um, you know, as a general rule, at least in, in our field, we, you know, consider that to be a veterinarian that um, either, you know, works on lameness of the hoof um, alongside other far farriers or uh, in, in our instance, in our group, all of our veterinary podiatrists also actually apply our therapeutics and shoe the horses that we're working on. So, uh, you know, it's basically a veterinarian that, that sees, treats, and, and works on problems of the foot. Um, can you explain a little bit about that vet-farrier relationship? I know that you... Um, in your podiatry unit, you guys are are doing your showing. But what is the relationship about between the vet and the farrier, and where is the line between vet and farrier? Oh, that's a great question, and uh, you know it's certainly kind of a hot topic. It, it, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of farriers are are quite skilled and and have uh, a really good grasp on biomechanics and hoof health and and all sorts of things, and uh, veterinarians, you know, oftentimes are are expected to have the answers for what's going on inside a foot, and, and frankly, sometimes, you know, we as veterinarians just don't know, um, but it's uh, certainly, I think, the keystone for, for hoof health, and, you know, and as the old saying, no, no hoof, no horse, I think uh, that relationship is paramount to, um, you know, success of the horse, and 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 it's also it's really a triad because you also have the client in the mix of that interaction. So, um, I think it's you know best is a is a healthy respect and uh, teamwork amongst the veterinarian farrier and also the client. Um, you know, because oftentimes veterinarians don't have the tools or the experience to implement what they want to do with the hoof. Uh, and the farrier does, um, but where that can get complicated is that, you know, veterinarians see uh, things more or less in black and white through radiographs or imaging, and, you know, they know where they, you know, just as a a word, say, breakover, you know, they want their breakover at a certain point, and they'll draw lines on a radiograph, and being that the hoof capsule is a, li a living organism, uh, you can't always just chop the toe off or do, um, you know, what you'd like to see radiographically. But, you know, the good thing is there are often many avenues to get there. And, and that's where the experience of, uh, of a farrier can say, you know, I can't do that, but I think we can go to the same place, maybe just in a different way. You know, I can modify this shoe that I have available and with the depth that I'm perceiving in this foot I don't think I can do that but we can still get there and I think that's where you know open lines of the communication and a healthy respect for both professions is, uh, is really important. So did you have an interest first in farrier work or did you become a vet first and then get involved in in farrier work? I was a farrier first. Um, I grew up in, in East Texas. My parents had Western performance horses and uh, I think they just wanted a cheap farrier. So, uh, they, uh, they sent me to, sh sent me to shoe in school when I was a teenager, uh, in my late teens. And I started, a you know, a, a small quarter horse centric practice in, in Texas and just kind of grew from there. And, you know, it wasn't until, until years later, 
uh, I always knew I wanted to go to vet school, but I uh, I went to the Marine Corps first and uh, spent spent four years there, and then went to Texas A&M, and that's really where my interest and uh, exposure to what I do now blossomed. You know, I was a just shoeing sound horses and, you know, ranch horses, working horses, those sort of things there for the first several years of my practice. Well, for everyone listening, I want to give them a quick review of our Ask the Horse Live format. We're going to be starting with the questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question and you're listening live, um, and you'd like, or you'd like a clarification on one of the doctor's responses, you can go ahead and enter those in the chat window in front of you. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible over the next hour. If you're listening to our archive or our podcast and are interested in joining us live during one of our events, you can register to receive our announcements at thehorse.com or visit thehorse.com slash askthehorse live. So we're going to go ahead and get started. Dr. Fleming, our first First question is from Angie in Missouri, and she wants to know how often is it recommended to trim or shoe a horse's hooves? And I'm interested in your answers because I have four horses on three different schedules. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's common, actually, um, and I think that's a great point. So I would say as a general rule, four to six weeks would be the average length of time between uh, trimming or shoeing, but certainly some horses uh, require much more frequent intervals and some, you know, for lack of a better term, can get away with longer. Um, you know, every horse is an individual as far as their hoof quality and their hoof growth uh, and also what we're asking those horses to do. So if they're uh, abrading more foot or losing more hoof wall or sole over the course of the cycle, then their needs will be quite different than one that's uh, primarily in a, a grassy paddock or stall. But that would, I would say four to six weeks. I want everyone to be on the same schedule, <laughs> but it is not <laughs> possible. I have tried. Um, our, we have a question from Carrie in Maryland, and she wants to know what the if there is a difference between the way a barefoot trimmer trims a horse's hoof and the way a farrier trims the hoof. So can we back up and have you explain a little bit the difference between a trimmer and a shoer? potentially, and then what that means for how our horse's feet are cared for. Sure. Um, you know, it, I think uh, a lot of these things could boil down to kind of how a practitioner markets themselves. Um, but I, strictly speaking, I think uh, like a barefoot trimmer or someone that trims only um, does just that. So they, you know, they model a hoof through trimming and, um, you know, or other ancillary therapies like boots and whatnot uh, to manage the hoof health. Whereas a farrier will certainly trim a foot, but they also uh, commonly, but not always, will apply shoes, be they steel or modern materials or some other manner of, of physical protection that's permanently or, you know, inter, you know interval um, applied to, to a foot. We have a question from our live audience. It's from Jamie, and it's a follow-up to you mentioning that the hoof is a, a living organism. She says, since the hoof is a living organism, what's the, what is the best way for an owner to support and maintain the hoof's health? That's a great question. Um, you know, I think the best way is just to be uh, an observant owner, you know, look for for what is historically normal for your horse and that way you can pick out things that are abnormal when they spring up uh, your horse's comfort uh, and just the you know the the way that the foot looks you know is uh, is a big indicator of hoof health um, and I think that that would be kind of where when I'm talking to owners just don't just go through the motions of picking out their feet but actually look at their feet you know, every every day when you're in the barn and, and look for things when they change. And what role might nutrition play in the, the hoof's health? Well, nutrition certainly is, is a huge component of hoof health, uh, just as, as any anything that, that grows or is, is on the horse. Um, there are a lot of 
products out there certainly that are targeted to you know the basic building blocks of of feet um you know and and certainly some horses have digestive tract disease or things that limit the uh, ability for them to uptake nutrients um you know gut wall thickening those sort of things so uh nutrition is a is a huge component and certainly you can see the evidence of changes in not only nutrition but activity and certain things and the growth patterns of feet and i think it's it's evident that that uh, nutrition does have a, a big influence on health and growth we have a question from marcia in tennessee and she wants to know when are shoes appropriate for a horse and de developmentally can they damage the natural growth and inner structures within the hoof okay so uh, for me anyway um you know, I, I think horses in the barefoot condition is is a really good thing as long as they're able to tolerate it for what is being asked of them. So, uh, you know, I treat every horse as an individual again. And um, for instance, today I was working on a couple of trail horses. One came in that was fairly thin sold and was going to be going on a, a somewhat rigorous ride, a trail ride about two weeks from now. And the other horse had plenty of sole depth, was sound. I shod one, I left the other barefoot. And it's just a matter of, you know, is the horse comfortable with what he's being asked to do in his activities? Uh, do you see hoof wall damage or thin soles or, you know, issues like that? And that's that's the determining factor for me as far as on the most basic level. Now, certainly there are a lot of disciplines out there that we're asking not only for the foot to be healthy and sound but also perform and have traction or movement you know alterations those sort of things so uh, there's a, a lot of reasons for it but that at the basic level is the horse capable of maintaining hoof health without a shoe if he is and he's doing what you need to do performance wise then i think that it's acceptable to go barefoot now as far as shoes damaging the internal structures you know uh We've certainly been shoeing horses for for over 2,000 years. Uh, we've come a long way, but the basic the basic tenets have probably been unchanged for at least several hundred years on how, at the most basic level, shoes are applied. And, and I think when they're applied appropriately, with um, you know fitting the foot, maintaining distortions within the hoof capsule, uh, I don't personally have the opinion that we're causing damage. But certainly there are some feet out there that, for whatever reason, don't tend to tolerate nails, you know, be they thin-walled feet or, you know, some other reason. So it's a case-by-case, -case, you know, basis. But I, I think for the most part, most horses are relatively unaffected with a skilled, appropriately applied shoe. I have four horses, two are shod and two are barefoot. And one, um, I bred him, he's 16 now, and I kept thinking, oh, I'll put shoes on him when he needs them. And now he's 16 and he still never has shoes on. Um, but, which I figure he saved me a lot of money over his lifetime. But, um, but I wonder, what are those signs that your horse might benefit from shoes versus one that doesn't because I just went by a gut feeling of this horse is okay um, and he's never had any problems even when I ride him out in the mountains in the rocks he still does okay I don't even put boots on him um, but what are some signs that maybe a horse needs shoes or maybe they can keep going without them well certainly soundness I think is going to be the the one that sticks out the most so if they're if they're gimpy out there on gravel or hard ground uh, certainly with rocks and those sort of things, then that's a big indicator that they're asking for more protection. Uh, visually, um, seeing cracks within the hoof, uh, you're getting chipped up along the margins, uh, those sort of things would be would be a visual cue that, you know, potentially we need to add some protection here. Uh, another thing is just the, the hoof shape itself. If you're, you know, unhappy with the way that the foot is looking, sometimes shoes can augment the stability of the hoof capsule and um, and provide you know better overall shape and, and support of that hoof capsule 
We have a question from our live audience. Harriet says she has a fox trotter that had always had shoes on, but she's had him barefoot now for three months. He was trimmed last week, and now he's walking like he's in pain. She says her farrier says that he is, quote, walking on his heels. She wonders if she should go back to shoes for this horse. She said he's on pasture and not in work. Okay. So, you know, I encounter this scenario quite a bit in my practice and, you know, it could be one of those things that uh, due to the protection that the shoes were given that horse three months ago, he had built some sole depth, um, had some wall length, those sort of things. And then over the course of those three months, he, uh, be it weather conditions or whatever, um, you know, environmental conditions were out there that, that the horses lost some sole depth or maybe some length of the wall and then just needs protection. But I would encourage, um, you know, that owner to also, you know, first of all, talk to the farrier and say, you know, is there um, some reason that you're seeing that, that he's walking on his heels? You know, that could be an indication that, that, you know, there's a, a part of the foot that that horse is trying to offload, you know, maybe the, the sole in the toe area or something along those lines. And also, you know, that might not be a bad time to uh, get veterinary involvement and get some, some radiography to, uh, to see what's going on inside the foot. You know, that would be a great opportunity for the vet and the farrier to, to try to help that horse as a team. So I think it's interesting, Harriet, saying that the horse is walking on his heels. Can you talk to us a little bit about how the hoof should meet the ground in, in a horse that has a healthy foot? Sure. Um, as, as a typical, I'd say most horses out there, you know, they, they more or less land flat. Um, that's not always the case. Some land on their lateral wall and they roll heavily to the inside or they land toe first or heel first. Um, it, it's not always a detectable lameness associated with those different loading stances, you know, but as a general rule, you know, a horse will land somewhat flat. Um, now it, at different speeds, certainly they will land heel first uh, if they're at a canter or something like that. But in, in a walk, you know, when we're seeing them sort of in slow motion, you know, that's the typical typical way that they're loaded. We have a question from Lisa in our live audience. She has four horses, but one of them has Cushing's and has foundered in the past. She says that horse seems to have much faster hoof growth than the other horses. Is there a relationship between founder or Cushing's and hoof hoof growth rate? Uh, I would say not necessarily, but potentially. So, um, you know, I think it's dependent. If uh, if a horse is laminitic, you know, typically there's been some alteration in the structures deep within the foot and also potentially the blood supply nourishing those different tissues. Um, Kind of the typical thing that we would see with a, you know, a rotational founder, one that's actually rotated with the coffin bone, is that the dorsal wall up at the front of the foot doesn't grow as quickly as the heel area. And you'll get, you know, a very upright foot over the course of a cycle, and that toe will get that dish or that slipper look to the front. So I think it certainly depends on if that foot is growing in a healthy manner or an unhealthy manner, uh, but it could be related to the Cushing's and the laminitis for sure. Uh, we have a question from our live audience. Vicki wants to know how often a pastured retired horse's hooves should be inspected. I th you know, personally, it would be great if they could be inspected every day. Um, you know, I've uh, I've got a couple of retired ranch horses here at the house, and. Um, with my busy schedule, it's tough for me to get my eyes on them every day. Uh, but my wife is pretty good about checking them. And um, one of my guys came in with a with a lag bolt, kind of in the perimeter of his foot, but it was within the sensitive tissues. Yeah. And if uh, if we hadn't, and he was a pretty stoic guy, you know, he's a little bit off on it. And she told me, and I came and checked him late that night, and, uh, and found that foreign body there. But you know, picking feet seeing those feet as much as you can uh, daily if possible, but certainly several times a week, I think is a, is a really good idea just to um, ward off things like thrush and other diseases of the feet, penetrations, 
you know, seeing that you're getting separations in the feet, anything that you can head off early and be preventative rather than reactive after something's already gotten bad is best. We have a question from Ken in our live audience, and he says he has two barefoot Arabians, each with a left front club foot. He wants to know if the club feet should be trimmed differently than the regular ones. So on this one, I'm going to ask you to back up a little bit, too, and explain to the audience what a club foot is for those who don't know, and then uh, address Ken's question. Okay, sure. So club feet. They're uh, characterized as being uh, more upright than normal. So if you have what you would consider to be a normal hoof on, say, the right front in uh, this gentleman's case, uh, and the left front is much straighter up and down, has more heel, um, has a, you know, a certain hoof angle that is, that is past a certain point, then that would be considered a, a club foot. Um, and to address the question of trimming, uh, certainly I, I think that every foot on a horse is an individual. Um, you know, many many people take great pains to make all the feet, you know, or at least pairs fore and hind to be matched. But uh, for me, I find that I'm treating every foot as an individual. And if they look the same, that's great. And oftentimes uh, we can do things, you know, through appliances or shoeing to make them behave the same, but they may not necessarily look the same. So if I was trimming uh, barefoot, club-footed horses, I would trim that foot differently than I would the low foot. And typically what I would do in that case is try to maintain as much sole depth as I can over the apex of the coffin bone. That tends to be where they get rather thin and they beat up their toe. And a lot of times that the dorsal aspect or the front of the foot will have that dish similar to a laminitic foot and uh, basically try to keep that flare at bay. And I'll put a little rocker in my trim just to try to reduce the forces out there over the toe. Uh, we have a question from Jean in Pennsylvania and Jean wants to know if you recommend that a hoof be cut at a specific angle or do you go by the slope of the pastern? She says that she has seen both recommended. Sure, and and I think that that's uh, largely dependent on the discipline that the horse is in. Uh, certainly, the um, confirmation, you know, as a you know, it's common to to think that the slope of the shoulder, the slope of the pasture, and the hoof should more or less be parallel. Uh, I don't ascribe to certain hoof angles. Uh, I'm often asked with certain uh, breeds and disciplines to to try to get the same angles on feet or or try to get to a certain angle because the trainer feels that that's the angle that the horse goes best at and if I can do that and still feel like I'm serving the hoof health the best that I can then I will try to uh, reach that but uh, for me I find that I read the feet that I'm shoeing or trimming and I'll let them tell me as much about what their angle should be as the pastern or some arbitrary degree value. Um, Brittany in Illinois wants to know how incorrect angles can affect a horse's soundness and comfort. Yeah, I think that the, certainly within the last uh, the last decade or more, a uh, negative palmar angle has been a more and more common topic and what that is is that the angle that the coffin bone is in relation to the ground uh, we tend to like to see those coffin bones be in a positive stance you know three to five degrees of positive angle so that would have the tip of the coffin bone lower than the than the back of it um, so when that bone is flat or even negative it does tend to put more strain on the tissues in the back of the foot it also puts differently on the tendons and ligaments that attach to the foot um, so your deep digital flexor tendon your suspensories all those sort of things are affected differently so I think that angles that aren't ideal can certainly be very uh, contributing to to lameness and, and issues with the foot Pam in Missouri uh, asks you if you can discuss 
horses who have developed long toes and low heels. She wants to know what causes it and what might help to correct the problem. I have one of these. (laughs) 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 So um, can you talk to us a little bit about what it means to have a low heel, long toe, and then the problems that can be associated with that? Sure. Um, That actually kind of goes right in line with that negative palmar or plantar angle. So palmar would be on the front, plantar would be on your hind limbs. Um, A lot of those feet have kind of a bull-nosed appearance. They have a really long toe and crushed-type heels or underrun heels. So that would be a low, long toe, low heel type scenario. And that either develops, you know, on that horse the way he was born. You know, he may have really long pasterns and just put more pressure in the back of his feet over time. Uh, It could be shoeing relating related uh, another issue is the digital cushion so it's a basically a thick shock absorbing pad that lives under your frog between the frog and the navicular apparatus and that's the health and the sort of vitality of the back of the hoof and when that degenerates we find that it doesn't come back and if you look at your heel bulbs on your on your horse if you can, you know, grab that little dimple that rests right there at the bottom of the pasture and, and you put your thumb, say, on the frog, if your fingers are really close together, that's where that digital cushion should be. And a low foot automatically has a lower, a smaller digital cushion than, say, an upright foot, like a club foot. But those can degenerate over time. And they often, once you lose that structure, then you start developing those crushed heels and that long toe type foot. So I, my horse that has this issue, he came that way and he was um, middle-aged when I got him. So with a younger horse, is there a way to prevent that deterioration of that digital cushion? Is there anything that could have been done earlier to save that and prevent the, the long toe, low heel situation? Yeah, I think there's certainly some things that we can do to try to mitigate that. Uh, commonly, you know, I work on a lot of thoroughbreds and, and a lot of these horses are putting a lot of pressure on the, on the back half of their feet at speed and training and in racing. So, and they also have a very light hoof that's built for speed, you know. So those are the, the feet that I see from two days old until they're retired, either as broodmares or stallions or, you know, off the track thoroughbreds that are out, you know, having a sport career. And, I think that soul support is is a, an, a, an important thing that we can do to try to help those feet. When horses are stalled for, you know, say up to 23 hours a day, um, they're not really engaging the back of their foot, and oftentimes they're on bedding that that doesn't conform to the bottom of the foot. And if we can put like a removable orthotic, say an impression material that forms to the foot, and while they're stalled. You leave that in there, just put some duct tape over it, and then when they go to work, you take it out, and they have just a regular open shoe. They can go and perform with the traction and the lightness that they need, and then they have that support back in the stall. Uh, another thing would be bar shoes or any type of shoe that, that physically cradles the back of the foot and just helps support those tissues. Uh, I think the the biggest thing is trying to keep the back of the foot engaged, and if you can do that, then you can help maybe reduce the chances or slow the progression of that deterioration back there. We have a question from our live audience. Anna wants to know if there's any way to tell if your horse has a negative pulmonary angle without taking x-rays. There are certain sort of visual cues, uh, one being that the coronary band is very steep. Um, So if you, especially on the hind limbs, uh, they've found that if you basically trace a line, say you had a laser that was uh, taped to the side of the coronary band directly over it, if that laser pointed above the knee on the forelimb, then that is a visual indicator that, that there may be a, a negative palmar angle. Uh, the other thing would be just those really low crushed heels and a long toe. Oftentimes those toes will be bullnosed or they'll be rounded off, kind of like a dome in the front. So that's uh, another indicator that you may have something going on with that. And uh, lastly, uh, if you're looking at the growth rings, 
So the the little micro, if you look really close at your your horse's feet, there will be subtle rings like a tree has that kind of represent the rate of growth. So a negative palmar plantar angle horse will typically have much wider growth rings in the toe region than at the heel. So speaking of x-rays, how frequently should we have our horse's feet x-rayed? It seems like we wait until something's wrong. Should we be doing that before something goes wrong? Uh, I know my farrier would love me to do x-rays more frequently than I do. Do you have a recommendation as both a vet and a farrier? Well, you know, I think it's it's tough to just arbitrarily recommend that you get them at a certain age or, you know, at given times, but they are certainly valuable, you know, no doubt. Um, you know, in a word of caution, the quality and the kind of the views that you get can be quite different depending on how that radiograph is taken. Um, so you can't always take them as being concrete on things like balance. Uh, if a horse is standing with his head off to one side, that coffin bone moves quite a bit more than you would expect within that hoof capsule. So, you know, having an experienced um, clinician taking those radiographs the best that they can. You know, oftentimes we're in environments where, you know, we're going to get subpar films because the, the ground is not level. Um, the horse is being unruly. There's a lot of different things, but, um, you know, for me, I have a radiograph machine with me every day, and, it, and it's certainly a huge part of, you know, my diagnostic workup and my capability to diagnose things. Uh, but back when I was a farrier, you know, before I went to vet school, yeah, I, I really a lot of the times wish that I could have gotten radiographs, but oftentimes it's, you know, it's just one more expense to an owner. And, you know, sometimes that's met with, well, let's just wait and see what the shoeing does. And sometimes that's the best that you can do. Uh, but certainly if there are issues um, with the feet, I think radiographs can be quite valuable. Uh, but in the sales industry here in the thoroughbreds, we get radiographs on all these things all the time. Uh, but, you know, certainly in other parts of the country, that may not be the case. But um, it would be tough for me to say you need to have it done at six months to see if things are going wrong. But visually, if you're seeing issues, then then I would jump on it and get some rads taken. So looking at radiographs is a technical skill. How do farriers learn that? Or how do you know that your farrier has that skill set to really be able to read those radiographs? Is that something that your vet's helping with? Is it something that they're learning at their shoeing schools? What role do those radiographs play in the farrier's work? Well, I, I would say that's probably quite controversial, actually. Um, so when you're looking at radiographs, there's a there's a big distinction between doing that for shoe placement and doing that for diagnosis. Um, every state has a Veterinary Practice Act, and it's quite different on what people are allowed to do. You know, it also goes over to like equine dentistry and those sort of things. So I think probably the vast majority of those farriers that are skilled at looking at radiographs for shoe placement have developed that skill set over time, probably working alongside veterinarians uh, in a team approach. Um, and there's also a lot of great information and resources online. Uh, there are certainly courses that are that are given by different people that go over radiography pretty extensively, and, and there's a lot of knowledge and you know experience to be gained from from all those sources. So, you know, I think it's probably a little bit of everything. We have a question from our live audience. It's from Kathy, and this is a question we've actually received a lot of this question in our registration questions as well. She wants to know about white lion disease. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what white lion disease is? And then she's asking if you have any suggestions for treatment. Sure. Yeah, I, I deal with quite a bit of white lion disease, and it's uh, it's really frustrating to to encounter it because it's it's a kind of an insidious process that is growing under the foot and you, you can't see it until things you know may be quite bad. And what it is, it's environmental fungus uh, in combination with bacteria and other things that typically do well in an oxygen poor environment like the inside of a hoof. They seem to 
kind of target one particular area of the foot, which would be the unpigmented portion. So if you look at a freshly trimmed foot, the outer edge of the wall will have some color, even if it's yellow or black. And as you move closer to the middle of the foot, it's going to get wider and wider. And right before you get to what's called the white line, which is actually yellow, <laughs> um, that's the area that, that white line disease attacks. And once it, and it may just be a stone or some sort of defect that allows soil and moisture to, to remain in a little pocket that it grows from there. And some horses, you could have 20 horses in the same paddock and one may be greatly affected and the rest of them are fine. So we don't really know the reason that some are affected more so than others. Um, you know, it's a theory that, that some of these horses may be a bit uh, immunocompromised or some reason that their horn quality isn't as good as the other horses in the field. But it's it's basically an anaerobic um, process that those organisms chew on that unpigmented horn to the point that they could cause mechanical founder and the internal portion of the foot is no longer supported and you have big problems. Mm -hmm. So how do you go about treating that? So typically for me, um, you know, those guys don't like oxygen. So I like to give them all the oxygen that I can. And that may be through debridement. So I'll uh, certainly assess the, the hoof conformation and the extent of the white line disease to uh, come up with my shoeing plan um, to, to support that foot. And then I'll go in and, and typically physically remove that outer wall to expose the lamina, the, the keratinized lamina that's over that or the white line and treat it topically. I uh, may use something that's uh, like chlorine based to, uh, to go in there and kill that. And there's certainly a lot of like formalin based products. A lot of them are purple in color that I will squirt on the foot to to try to keep that stuff at bay and it also toughens that tissue so it acts more like a hoof wall as opposed to its normal sort of rubbery texture uh, but that's a typical typical approach is uh, remove it treat it try to keep it as clean and dry as i can through the shoeing cycle and hope that it's growing down and every time i come back to that foot i'm going to kind of work my way around those margins and make sure that i'm not getting areas creeping back uh, beneath the hoof wall so when I think of white line disease, I always think of um, athlete's foot and people, and people can spend years fighting it, um, you know, toenail fungus. Um, is, is that a fair analogy between the two? Yeah, I certainly think so. It's, uh, I believe that would be uh, oncomycosis is what it's called, and that's, that's, that's exactly what it is. It's fungus that is living in a poorly perfused part of the body. And, you know, humans, they're, the, you know, the, the bed underneath their nails is a lot more um, sort of reachable by systemic drugs. So I think humans typically would take systemic products, whereas the horse isn't so much the case. That area is rather isolated from the blood supply. So we typically have to do things topically as opposed to systemically. So does this end up being a chronic problem for those horses or can you get it cured and it's never going to be a problem again? Well, I think it can go both ways. I've certainly had cases that I eradicated it, never had any trouble again. And then they're the ones that I get it grown out and I come back, say, a year later, having not seen the horse and it's pretty rampant again. Um, so I, I think that it could go either way and you really don't know. It's just one of those things. Once you have a horse that you know that's susceptible to it, that you need to kind of keep a closer eye on it. Yeah. So what's the owner's role in that? What can the owner do to help with the treatment and prevention? Um, I think husbandry is a big thing. Picking feet, keeping, keeping the horses stabled in, you know, a, a reasonably clean environment. Uh, whatever you can do to limit the, uh, you know, that sort of environment that those organisms will live in. Um, so, you know, if you can keep your feet drier and, you know, healthier, then that, I think that sets that hoof up to be uh, better off against those type of organisms. Um, you know, another thing is you could potentially 
intermittently treat the feet with some sort of soap, one of those chlorine-based type products that I talked about. Uh, and the biggest thing is just ask your farrier, hey, how are his white lines looking? You know, do you feel like he's getting CD toe or uh, any white line disease progression? And once you do, be aggressive about it. You can't act, you know, like an ostrich and stick your head in the sand because it's just going to keep growing beneath that wall. Okay. We have a question from Richard in our live audience. He wants to know if a frayed frog should be trimmed and how often does the frog shed from the horse's foot? I think it's variable. You know, I see some horses that may shed their frogs a couple of times a year. Uh, for me, you know, I try to leave the mass of the frog in place. Um, you know, I think it's certainly a support structure within the hoof. Um, and if it has frayed edges, I think, you know, if they're harboring thrush or, you know, it looks like it's going to be something, I'll, I'll clean those tags up and, and I'll also kind of trim the edges up to where, you know, the frog's a bit more able to, say, self-clean along the sulcus there. On, so the where the bars come down and meet the frog, that area is where you typically have manure and debris. So if I can make that frog kind of mirror the sensitive frog that grows that rubbery tissue from the bottom, uh, then I typically consider that. I try to leave it healthier than I found it. But if there's nothing to take, then I'll leave it. Uh, Gabrielle in our live audience wants to know if you can talk a little bit about brittle hoof walls and nu nutrition and topicals that might help strengthen them. Okay. So, you know, this is this is a huge frustration for, for tons of people. Um, my own, one of my horses as well is something that I deal with kind of constantly. Uh, I think... Part of it has to be hereditary. Um, my parents had a, a certain line of horses when I was growing up that I knew what their feet were going to be like before that foal, you know, was a yearling. And, uh, you know, I think in the environment and what we do husbandry-wise also plays a big factor in that. You know, with the, the, the flies that we have during this time of year, uh, those horses oftentimes are turned out at night when dew's on the ground, so all night long the foot's, you know, soaking water, and then they come back to a dry stall all day, so it's wet, dry, wet, dry. And if you kind of picture what plywood does when you get it wet and let it dry many times, it starts delaminating. And I think that's basically what happens to some of these feet. So, you know, whatever you can do to, to limit that wet, dry cycle, I think can help. There are a lot... You know, there are tons of products out there that are going to claim all sorts of things. And, you know, and some some of these products would be categorized as sealants and some would be moisturizers. Um, my personal opinion is that, you know, most of the most of the moisture, you know, not having the turnout situation in mind comes from within the foot. So a lot of times I'll use sealants to try to lock in that moisture that's already more or less evaporating out of the foot. Um, another thing that you can use is super glue. Uh, a lot of these feet that I uh, that I take out of cuff shoes or something like that, I will uh, apply kind of a gel type viscous super glue on it, and it, I find that when I come back that that is still in place uh, when I'm when I'm seeing that foot again. So that's another another thing that you can use. Um, we have a question from Marilyn in our live audience, and she wants to know if it's better to let a hoof abscess come out naturally or to try to drain it. Is it best to soak a possible abscess or not? That's uh, a great question. Um, sort of within my practice, I typically see the worst of the worst, uh -huh. you know, as far as numbers go. Um, I'd say, you know, 999 out of 1,000 abscesses go without issue you know the vast majority of them you can you know let them pop on their own i typically don't recommend that um i think the the faster that you get those treated and open you know, relieve that pressure the the less chance you have of you know overloading the other limb that's having to take the weight of that one for too long you know and potentially get laminitis or something like that so i tend to uh, kind of pursue intervention 
uh, more quickly. Certainly there are tons of horses out there that, you know, just, just get over it on their own. It either vents that whatever the, you know, the route of least resistance would be to the coronary band or at the toe or white line, wherever. But for me, you know, I, I like to, I like to, you know, delicately hoof test that foot and try to pinpoint the source of that pain the best that I can try to go in uh, farther out to the edge of the foot as possible. You know, I don't like to dig holes out in the middle of the sole if I don't have to. Sometimes you do because that's where they are. But I'd say most abscesses tend to uh, try to vent out near the white line. And, you know, so I think getting them open uh, is, is better. Now, if you dig a huge hole and the corium or that soft tissue within that foot swells and occludes that area, they can be a lot sore from that than they were from the original abscess. So, you know, it, it needs to be done skillfully, but I would open it up. And as far as soaking goes, absolutely. I think soaking abscesses is, um, you know, it's a tried and true practice, and I think it's still certainly effective using Epsom salt and betadine or uh, one of those chlorine-based uh, soap products. You know, I think all of those certainly have a place. And uh, another thing that I use, kind of a, an old trick, is uh, an overnight soap bag. So I take, you know, one of our five-liter IV bags that's used in surgery, and I'll put Epsom salt, DMSO, iodine, and uh, just like your brand that you would have in your barn, and make a basically a poultice. And that stays on that foot for 24 hours. And it's a really strong drawing agent. And it's pretty effective at getting some of those deeper abscesses that you can't quite get to. So if you suspect an abscess, is that a call to your farrier or is that a call to your vet? I would say most of the time it's a call to your farrier. Um, and I think that's kind of one of those things where uh, veterinary coverage and your sort of personal relationship with your veterinarian or your farrier dictates who gets that first call. Mm -hmm. I think that um, a lot of farriers are skilled at opening abscesses and things that they do. Um, I think it is one of those things that depends on the jurisdiction on kind of what um, could be frowned upon, but often isn't, you know, that, that a farrier goes in to open one up. You know, I think that they have to, just make a personal decision on has this gone to the point where I'm invading live tissue or am I doing something that I really need veterinary assistance with? I never think it's a bad idea to call your veterinarian. You know, they can sedate the horse, uh, they can shoot radiographs, they can do a lot of things to speed the process of finding that abscess. There's tons of abscesses that I find that I need radiography to, to really pinpoint where that gas pocket or where that fluid pocket is. So I think it's it's one of those things that they can work together and help the horse faster oftentimes, but it's ultimately up to the owner. Jamie in our live audience has a question about horses with thin soles. She wants to know what are the pros and cons of pouring pads to regain sole thickness. So can you talk to us a little bit about the sole thickness and how we might go about making it thicker? Sure. So pour-in pads are oftentimes an excellent tool to to kind of add thickness over the sensitive areas of the foot. Um, kind of a caveat, though, is that if they're putting more pressure over those already thin areas, then it can backfire on you and you can get seromas or basically like a sterile abscess or increased pain from that, you know, load being transferred deeper within the foot. So I think, you know, it needs to be something that you, you know, make a, make an educated decision on, is this the type of foot that I can put a pour in pad on and get what I'm wanting out of it? I'd say the vast majority of thin soles out there that, that they are a good tool to use for that. But certain instances when they're very soft or very sensitive, it may create more problems than it's helping. In those instances, I will either um, put a treatment plate on with uh, the sole support or the pour in in the back of the foot or in the other area of the foot that is stronger and completely offload that area. I may do what uh, we call a differential pour. So I'll put the very softest pour in 
over that that sore area and i'll put the more firm stuff in the back of the foot um so you know, there there are different ways of looking at it. you can also put concavity within that pour in so it has a you have a foam board and you squeeze that stuff in from the back and i'll actually depress that foam pad deeply within the foot so when he's standing in the stall or standing on the ground that pour in isn't actually contacting the ground but when he's going over a rough terrain then it's offering that protection when i need it uh, we have a question from taylor in our live audience who is asking a follow-up to the white line disease questions. Taylor wants to know if metabolic horses are more susceptible to white line disease than other horses. Well, I don't know if you, you know, if we can categorize it as strictly metabolic horses, but I do think horses that have laminitis are more susceptible to it. When that, you know, the structure of the lamina is affected at the microscopic level even, you know, there's, there's more avenues of entry for those organisms to get in there. And you also find that those horses often abscess more. And, you know, when you look at a, a stretched lamina or a stretched white line, you know, it looks like the the edge pages of a wet book where they're just wrinkled and they're open. And certainly I think that they, they are more susceptible to white line disease and abscessing. Elizabeth in our live audience wants to know if, hoof supplements work? I think there's probably evidence out there that they do. Um, if the horse truly needs the things that are in those hoof supplements, then yeah, I think we can see uh, great improvements. The sort of the downfall is that oftentimes that isn't realized until six, nine or 12 months down the road by the time that new wall actually gets to the, to the ground surface. But I do think that they can help. Um, but if the horse has all the, you know, if its GI system is up taking all the nutrients on a balanced ration and they already have all the things that they need for their feet, you may just be making expensive manure. We have another follow-up to white line disease. Uh, I mentioned it was a popular topic in the registration um, questions. <laughs> uh, Natalie wants to know if it's more common for um, – actually, that's the – yeah, Natalie wants to know if it's more common for a horse to get white line disease in any foot, or is it more common in the front versus the hind? I would say – we probably see it more often in the front and and that may be for a couple of reasons but i don't think it's you know that it is greatly so i think you know i, I see it in all four feet but as a typical rule i probably see more up front and that be that may be that the horse you know bears roughly 60 percent of its weight up front so you're already asking that foot to bear more weight uh, the other thing is just the way that horses travel on the forehand when they turn, they plant their foot and twist, and on the hinds, they just lift their limb and step over the opposite limb. So there's a little bit more twisting uh, that goes on with the front hooves. So, you know, that's all just, um, you know, hypothetical, but, you know, certainly I think I see a bit more in the fronts. So if you see it in one foot, are you more likely to see it in another on the same horse? I would say yes, but not necessarily. Um, you know, there's plenty that I just have it in one foot, but for every one of those, there's probably 10 that have a bit and several feet. So I, I think it, um, kind of going back to that first thing when you've got 20 in a paddock and one has it really bad and the rest of them don't have any, you know, it just seems like some horses in particular are more susceptible to it. And it doesn't, doesn't typically matter if that foot's white or dark. Um, you know, it's just one of those things that some horses just seem to be more susceptible. Well, it's funny that you just mentioned light versus dark feet, because the next question is from our live audience, and it's from Taylor, who wants to know if there's any truth to the theory that white hooves are more brittle than dark hooves. Taylor says, my horse loses shoes on his white foot more frequently than the others. Yeah, so this is, you know, this has been a very common theory for you know as long as horsemen have been running around and uh, i think it's been disproven i uh actually 
did an article on this a few months ago, and um, all the research that I could find pointed to no correlation between hoof color and quality uh, being on the same horse, that is. So, you know, the studies basically looked at the internal structure. They twisted and manipulated those feet with different colors, and they drove nails with shoes and they measured the resistance of those nails coming out of those different colored feet and they were all statistically uh, similar. So, um, and you know, and another, I think key point is that a lot of feet are black and white, you know, have a stripe or something like that. And there's no apparent deviation between the hoof in that zone where the color changes. And if they were structurally different, I think we would see an alteration in that foot. So, um, no, I don't believe that there is a difference between white and dark feet, at least on the same horse. Well, and I have to say, I have a mare who's a warm blood Arab cross that I do distance conditioning and riding on, who has three white feet and has never had a shoe on, and her feet are tough as nails. And then I have a thoroughbred mare with all black feet not a speck of white on her who only is ridden in the arena and she is very tender footed. <laughs> so, and she's always <laughs> tossing her shoes off. So I'm going to agree with that. It depends on the horse and not the color, but uh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, that was a common question that came in also. Um, we have a question from Jerry in Kentucky and she wants to know how, if you can tell if on unshod feet will tolerate sandy or rocky terrain she said that she has an 11 year old horse that has never been shot so she's trying to decide she's going to take the horse out on rocky terrain should she go ahead and boot up the horse or or get shoes put on gotcha you know i, I think that's uh unfortunately one of those things that that you almost have to put the horse through its paces to find out um if you're nervous about it you know i think i would certainly to not you know uh upset your ride or you know have to have to quit early you know you may want to opt for something with more protection be that a boot or a shoe um but i would i would encourage you to find some terrain that would mimic the riding out on the trail closer to home you know if you could trailer him to a friend's house or if you have some area that would uh, be similar to what you would encounter you know just gently walk him over that and see how he reacts and then you know you can uh, do it under tack after that and just see how you respond. Another thing would be, you know, to go over the horse with hoof testers, see if he is uh, pinpoint sore in certain parts of the foot that you would expect to be improved with protection. Then that's something that you could, uh, could address before you actually go out on your trip. So do you have any recommendations for those of us who uh, do you have horses that we occasionally put in boots for trail type riding? Um, do you have recommendations about training or conditioning for those boots? I have that mare that I mentioned with really solid feet, but I do ride her on really rough terrain for lots of miles. And so I do boot her up occasionally and I get concerned um, about changing her breakover uh, with that boot or that I could be causing um soft tissue damage by changing her foot by sometimes riding her in boots and sometimes not. Is that a valid concern or am I just being a overly concerned horse owner? No, I, I think for me, it's a certainly valid point. You know, when, uh, when I wear different shoes and uh, go and, and do strenuous activities and something that I'm not used to wear and I can feel it. Um, and I think the same would probably be true for a horse. You know, when you're changing the angle, you're changing the breakover, like you mentioned. Um, there's a lot of a lot of different things to take into account, you know, soft tissue wise. So if you have the time and you know that you're coming up, my personal recommendation would be to to put them in it. You know, and you and you think about not only the um, sort of the mechanics of that, but also what it's doing to the heel bulbs and where that boot attaches. You know, if, if you give them a little bit of time to get used to that and, uh, you know, maybe decrease sensitivity or even allow that tissue to keratinize more in response to what it's being asked before you go out on a 100 miler, I think that that would be, be good. 
We have a question from Beth in our live audience, and Beth wants to know if your horse is barefoot, are there signs that he needs shoes other than being sore or responding to a hoof tester? Yeah, I think I, I lightly touched on that earlier. So if you, um, you know, if you're seeing sort of, you know, negative visual cues, if, you know, your, your foot's cracking or if you're chipping up or just the overall hoof shape isn't, or it's changing for the, you know, for the worst, then, then not, that might be a, a reason to, to get shoes on him short of soundness issues or hoof testing. So, uh, for me, you know, if I see a foot that, that I just don't like the way it's going, you know, then I'll talk to the owner and we'll, we'll at least put shoeing as an option out there. Well, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for tonight. Um, I want to thank Dr. Fleming for joining us and asking or answering everyone's questions. Thank you, Dr. Fleming. Yeah, thank you so much. I really uh, appreciate the opportunity and, uh, you know, hope you guys have, have great riding out there and enjoy your horses. Yeah, we um, got through a lot of questions. We had a lot of questions left, so we might have to do a part two sometime, uh, Dr. Fleming. Um, for everyone who's listening, I hope, or listening live, I hope you can join us next month when we're talking about senior horse health. Until then, from all of us here at The Horse, have a great night. <laughs>